0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am in sunny-ish New York City. In Washington, D.C., we have joining us Edward Luce of the Financial Times. And in Alexandria, Virginia, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School. And of course, everybody this week is eagerly awaiting the release of the Mueller report, which may be earth shattering, or it may be redacted into meaninglessness, or it may prove everything we believed, or it may prove nothing um, and uh, change nothing at all. And uh, that's gonna happen in a couple of days. But because Ed and Rosa are so plugged into the world, they are going to enable you to prepare for this emotionally. How do you prepare for this emotionally, Ed? Do you have a, have a <laughs> few drinks, take a nap?
0: Take yeah, I think, I, I think take a nap, sort of go low that day on your espresso consumption. Um, if you do yoga, you know, um, do some Bikram yoga in the morning. Um, in my case, you know, stretch your your fingers a couple of times and um, uh, consider is, that is to be exercise.
1: Is that your daily workout?
0: Yeah, it's 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 draining really. I have to is, lie yeah. down after that. Um, the um, I think emotionally, you know, what we what we seek, um, and I've always sought out of manner is um, clarity and you know perhaps the, um, sort of catharsis. And maybe that that was just too high a a demand to place uh, on him. Um, What I suspect, if we get a slimly redacted as opposed to a sort of comically redacted report later this week published um, by the Department of Justice, what I suspect we're going to have is separate tales um, and wheels within wheels and, um, uh, you know, stories that were not indicated by the bar summary um, of the Mueller report. And therefore, this sort of journalistic impulse and desire to produce one narrative, which is that Trump is off the hook or Trump is back on the hook again, a cloud has lifted or a cloud has descended again. That, that's actually probably not going to be borne out by the report. I, I, I would have thought there will be more more than enough material there to justify very robust, very aggressive hearings on Capitol Hill and yet also a narrative for Trump supporters and echo chamber to claim that he's been vindicated. And, uh, both can be, both can be true at a certain level. Um, and I suspect we're going to get that slightly more ambiguous picture, but that's, that's just my hunch. Um, you know, is don't, don't, don't prepare yourself for a simple unifying, clarifying narrative.
1: Um,
0: damn I was
1: hope, so hoping for a clarifying narrative after living in fog for well actually I've been living in a fog for a long long time um, <laughs> uh, I don't I, I even remember what it's like without the fog um, um, Rosa what? how are you preparing for it are you crawling under your bed as we speak
2: uh, no, I'm I'm just bracing myself for uh, another irritating round of silly pundit comments um, because I think it, I think it is right. This is not going to add substantially to what we already know, and even to whatever minimal extent it adds to what we already know, it is not going to change the political dynamic at all. Um, and yet, because of the nature of our media cycle, um, everyone is going to pretend that something momentous has been revealed or is about to now happen. And so I'm really just planning to spend Thursday afternoon taking that nap so I don't have to be subjected to that. I mean, I, I, will there be a few more interesting and revealing details that suggest uh, a higher degree of Trump and Associates criminality than? Attorney General Barr's summary has has revealed so far. Yes, probably. Um, will it be kind of interesting if you're uh, really following this very closely? Sure. Um, will it change the mind of a single undecided person or fundamentally change what Trump is now doing or is likely to do in the near future? No. Um, as Ed said, I you know I think the the only the only thing that in the long run, could have an impact is to the extent it gives uh, the Democrats additional ammunition for hearings um, that and makes them look less like they're just making stuff up. Um, that's that's helpful to them and maybe something else comes out later in the hearings. But in and of itself, uh, I think this is not going to be uh, terribly interesting. And I'm uh, and as I said, <laughs> I I'm already covering my ears in anticipation of the the uh, the cloud of pundit-driven hot air that is going to be drifting in our general direction on Thursday.
1: Well, Ed, you're a Washington professional, and um, uh, you probably can help with uh, the listeners with this. How long does it take for the hot takes to cool? Say this thing comes out in the morning, you know, on Thursday. Um there's gonna be an instant reaction, you know, the anti-Trump Twitterverse is gonna be, oh my God, and then the Trump Twitterverse is gonna be, oh my God, and some people are gonna say, well, this proves a lot, and then Trump's people will say, well, obstruction, no obstruction, no collusion. But at a certain point, you know, the hot takes cool off, and, and, and we have a little perspective on a 400-page document. Can, can we just go away and come back, I don't know, Sunday's Easter, maybe on Monday? The day after Easter, and 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 will we be okay if we just ignore all the bullshit between Thursday and Sunday?
0: Most probably, yes. Um, unfortunately, that won't um, that won't let me off the hook because I know they'll want a hot take, and I know that you know I'm going to have to tell them. They meaning my 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 employer, the Financial Times, that I know I'm going to have to tell them. Look, I'm not going to write a word until I've read 400 pages or whatever it is, minus the redactions. Um, because I know that the value of a report like this will be in the detail. We kind of, unless Barr is really spectacularly stupid, which I doubt, he's, he's not going to have misled us on the headlines that Mueller's left it up to the rest of us to decide whether this is obstruction, while the rest of us, he's left it up to Congress to decide whether this is obstruction, but it's concluded there is no um, sort of incontrovertible proof that there was conspiracy. Um, uh, the 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 interest the intrinsic interest this of uh, and four hundred pages it's a lot of pages is the detail um, uh, uh, on the on the abstraction and and indeed the conspiracy um, some of which we might not know and you know detail detail is quite a small word for what is just a massive issue we should you know we we have swung I think collectively you know from saying uh Mala is going to nail Trump to, oh, Trump's been let off the hook. And, you know, ni- neither, I think, are true. Uh, and I think, you know, we've had thesis antithesis, and now we're going to get into the sort of synthesis level. This is about the detail of how the president operates and who's been enabling him to operate like this. Um, and a qualitative judgment as to whether he is actively and continuing to actively um, Uh, obstruct um, justice. And, you know, the um, tweets that he's been issuing in the last few days, uh, in the build up to the release of this report, saying that, you know, the FBI was spying on him. And therefore, the FBI has got to be investigated. This is, um, this is an equivalent to obstruction of justice. I mean, Rosa, you know, the lawyer here will will, uh, correct me technically. But he is continuing in the same vein as before the Malat report, you know, was concluded. And that's, that's, a, that's a terribly interesting fact in itself. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to wait till Sunday. But I know that, you know, the nature of our business is we're going to have to give, as quick as we can physically read this document, we're going to have to give hot-ish, well, you know, very lukewarm takes. Well,
1: I don't want to over- dwell too much on this. I'd like to go on to some other issues, Rosa. But, um, the, the you know, Ed raises an interesting point, which is, you know, the president's tone has changed. And, and you know, Barr, I think, has revealed his colors since he first arrived on the scene as somebody who's playing more the president's defense lawyer than he is um, the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. Um and so the redaction itself could be a form of obstruction. Um, uh, some people are already up in arms that he's presenting it on the eve of Passover and Easter as a way of killing the story, um, that he waited so long, um, uh, that he's eliminating categories of of things from the report that he has no reason to eliminate. Um, you know, what what's the you know is it is it likely the bigger story here is what's in the report or what's out of the report?
2: That's a good question. Um, I think that the bigger future story is what the other ongoing investigations are going to do with the information that has already been forwarded to them from the Mueller team and the investigations that they have undertaken. Uh, as a result of that information, because, as I said, I, I would be surprised, and, and you know it could happen, but I, I would be surprised if there's some substantial and dramatic new information here as opposed to just filling in a few additional details. Um, and I would be surprised, you know partly as 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 Ed says, that you know, unless Barr is a lot dumber than than I think he is, I would be surprised if. Something is either revealed in what is not redacted, or or something is suggested by what is redacted that is super dramatic. Um, So I don't I don't think the report in and of itself is going to change anything. Um, So yeah, I mean I I don't know we we'll we'll see. We don't know yet whether we're going to get a report that is mostly unredacted and has a few stray lines redacted or whether we're gonna get a report in which, you know, two thirds of it is blacked out. Um I think if we do get that, it's gonna fuel a ton of conspiracy theories on the left, um some of which will be totally paranoid and crazy and some of which will be less paranoid and crazy. Um but but my guess is it's, you know, it's gonna be something in between. Um I think people will be chewing over it and fighting over it. But, but I guess I would, I would still say to anybody who is not enamored of Donald Trump, spend less time fixating on whatever is or isn't in the redacted version of the Mueller report that comes out on Thursday and, and more time registering voters for the 2020 election.
0: Well,
1: I think that sounds like good advice. So look, you know, we're all friends and, um, Uh, You know, sometimes I view these sessions as a little bit therapeutic. And so I want to open up to you and explain that last week I had a kind of a rough week. I was I was watching how things unfolded during the course of the week. And it seemed to me that, you know, you had uh, the ongoing saga around the non-release of the full Mueller report and Barr as uh, arrogation unto himself of the decision regarding whether or not there was obstruction. Um, you have the, the, uh, Mnuchin and the IRS deciding not to submit the president's taxes to the Congress, despite the fact that the 1924 law, it's very clear that when the chairman of the house, ways and means committee requests taxes, they, uh, are to receive them. Uh, you had the, um, Uh, president telling um, members of the Customs and Border Patrol that they should break the law and that if the courts, um, uh, uh, you know, tried to stop them, they should say they just simply had no choice. In other words, advising his own staff to break the law. Um, You had uh, uh, an admission or a leak Uh, In the midst of this coup that took place at the Department of Homeland Security because the president was frustrated by the fact that uh, senior officials there were telling him he couldn't do things because they were against the law uh, of a story that the president wanted to, for political retribution, release um, illegal immigrants into sanctuary cities. Uh, in an act that would in and of itself be illegal, and so on and so on. And I'm not going to list all of these things. But what I took away from all of that was that the President of the United States, the Attorney General of the United States, uh, members of the White House staff were feeling increasingly empowered to simply ignore the law because they felt that it would not be enforced, uh, because they felt that... um, uh, if it went into the courts, perhaps it would go up to the Supreme Court, and because the court was now uh, tilting in a rightward direction, they would get the decisions they want. Whatever it was, it just felt to me like last week was a really bad week for the rule of law, and I was struck because I had all of these things, and I actually wrote a kind of a long, you know, Twitter uh, thread, which I'm turning into a column for somebody else now, and and it it really weighed on me. Um, And while a number of people agreed with me, there was an article in The Atlantic that was saying the exact opposite. It was saying, look, the the systems are working. The courts are turning back the president. uh, 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 American democracy is intact. And and I just want to sort of draw you into my own neuroses here. And to me... I'm not sure. I'm not sure how this turns out. I think there are very reasonable scenarios to suggest that the president continues to break the law, that he tells people to break the law, that he feels he can do so with impunity, that uh, some of these cases will involve people not having the law ultimately enforced or having the courts go in a direction that is sort of contra-legal, contra-constitutional for political reasons, Um, and that we're seeing the Erosion of the rule of law and democracy in the United States in a way that I never thought we'd see it. And help me out here.
0: I, I don't disagree with you. Um, I don't disagree with you at all. Uh, and, and you know that's why I'm I sort of worried about this bipolar swing that we've had. From you know Trump's going to be nailed to now Trump's you know Trump's got away with this. Um, you know, I think the truth is more complex, but also more troubling. And I think that he's um not so much been vindicated as um been licensed to be vindictive and that all the things you summarized um that have happened in the last few days, which you know we could add to, um, you know, the 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 way in which he helped facilitate um Bibi Netanyahu's victory in Israel and the parallels there with Netanyahu now negotiating with potential coalition, far right coalition partners to provide all members of Knesset with retroactive immunity, meaning immunity from, um, from indictment. That, that, that kind of erosion of norms and the use of the ballot box to, um, to dilute the rule of law, to, to bend it, to provide massive exemptions to it for those in power, is something that Trump isn't just doing at home, um, but it is, an, is enabling um, abroad with like-minded populists. So I agree with your I agree with your general diagnosis that this is not a time to stand up and celebrate the guard, the, the, the guardrails um, having held um, because there is an erosion going on, which, you know, is, is erosion by itself is, is, is it's a subtle it's a subtle word in today's climate. We need cartoonish words like broken in order to take notice. But um the analogy I prefer is, you know, the termites eating the floorboards, and Trump's um, tr- tr- Trump's progressing um, um, a- along those lines, and just as fast, if not faster, after the bar summary of the Mueller report than he was than he was before. Um, the um, basis on which he is going to run for re-election next year is already very clear. Um, it's it's going to be, um, you know, the Karl Rovian, Tactic um, of doubling down on the base. Um, it's going to be the Karl tactic of uh, attacking your opponent's greatest strength rather than their greatest weakness, and that is diversity. Diversity is the, the the rest of America's greatest strength, and Trump will attack that. And you know, one assumes sort of mathematically that 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 that, that fails sooner or later. But if it succeeds um, next year, then. We will have every reason, based on what we've just been talking about, to be profoundly more worried about the future of democracy than we even are today. so so I, I broadly share your I broadly share your deep, deep concerns. Rosa
2: So I am going to temporize and say we'll find out because I, I think that there so so well, thoughts. One, to some extent, what Trump is doing is not that surprising. It's a mix of political rhetoric that he is unlikely to actually follow through on with with real policy shifts and uh, pushing the envelope by saying, oh, you want my tax returns? Um, Well, I'm going to take this all the way up to the Supreme Court if I have to. And that is not necessarily Surpri- neither, it's neither surprising nor is it necessarily bad for the rule of law. You know that 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 it's it's typical that whenever there is a tussle between the branches, you know between Congress and the president, um, that the president pleads executive privilege um, and you, you know or the unitary executive or inherent powers, um, and it ends up going to a court challenge. Um, and sooner or later, one side either gives in or a court decides it. So, so I don't think it's necessarily inherently devastating to the rule of law that Trump says, let's see what the courts say. Um, I think that whether the courts roll over will tell us something about the health of the rule of law. And I think that if the courts don't rule over and say, sorry, Trump. You have to do this, uh, not only on the tax return issue, but on the various other issues that are that are going to the courts. The moment of truth comes of does he does who does he abide by court decisions or not? And so far, you know when pushes come to shove, he has abided by court decisions, albeit very reluctantly and grudgingly, and with lots of angry tweets condemning the courts and condemning individual judges and various efforts to try again to find the next little loophole that he can go through and take that all the way up to. So 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 we don't the fact that he is testing the system doesn't necessarily tell us that the guardrails are failing yet. Um that, that so 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 that's my somewhat optimistic first thought. Um, it's not exactly optimistic, just maybe not quite as dire as as your vision, David. Um, you know that that we'll see whether those guardrails are effective or not. Um, we're continuing to find that out. Um, but the the other thought I have though is that um, I was thinking back to the George W. Bush administration and to those days between you know the 9/11 attacks and uh, the beginning of Bush's second term, when. Things were pretty darn scary, and I think it's probably worth remembering that they were in many ways every bit as scary. Bush's domestic rhetoric was not as off the rails scary as Donald Trump's is, but his rhetoric on issues of war and peace and international law, uh, torture, detention, was every bit as scary, and indeed, arguably even scarier, given that what was at stake in a very immediate way in those days was uh, you know the deployment of hundreds of thousands of American troops and the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people in foreign lands, not to mention the deaths of thousands of U.S. troops. Um, you know the, the, That was also a moment where we had senior administration officials, particularly Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, and the president himself. Doing and saying things that suggested that they cared neither about international law and international obligations uh, nor about domestic law and domestic legal obligations. and 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 there 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 is both kind of reassurance and reason to be fearful in sort of how that story turned out. You know, the reassurance is that Bush's second term was different from his first term, uh, and the Supreme Court did rebuff. Some of the most egregious things that Bush was trying to do. Uh, and despite some pretty scary rhetoric, early on, the Bush administration abided by those court decisions ultimately. Um, that's the you know that version of the story says uh, it's not th- things aren't necessarily worse now than they were then, and the outcome may not be worse now than it was then. but here's the here's the slightly more pessimistic take on that.. Um, we had an opportunity when President Obama came into office to rebuild the guardrails that had, if they, if they hadn't been knocked over, they had certainly been battered a bit and tested during the Bush administration. And the Obama administration chose not to. The Obama administration, instead of saying, boy, we saw some expansions of executive power That we're not great for American democracy. Um, We're going to try to do the equivalent of tying ourselves to the mast in a variety of ways because we understand the temptations to expand executive power. And we also are going to pursue accountability for violations of domestic and international law and ethics violations that occurred during the Bush administration. They didn't do that. You know, when it came to things like torture, Obama was very clear that he was not interested in pursuing. Legal or political accountability in any meaningful way, uh, and when it came to uh, executive power, Obama found himself in quite short order, uh, in some ways expanding executive power even even further using some of the Bush precedents, and that brought us to President Trump and the situation we're in right now. So I think you know there is a moral of that story, and it's a moral that if we can get to a post-Trump moment, uh, if he does lose the next election, that whoever takes power democrat or or if a republican hopefully a sane republican would be advised to take really seriously that that you know it's not it's not just about what trump does it's about what the next administration does does it kind of say okay no harm no foul that's over we don't need to do any repair work or does it say boy if we don't pursue accountability now and if we don't pursue meaningful curbs on executive power now uh then next time we're going to be in even worse shape
1: uh well um i know you were trying to temper all of that and make it sound better but it does sound in in some respects to me worse not only because of what you just said uh and and because presidents as you indicated tend not to give up powers that their predecessors have been given um but also because a couple things you didn't mention one of which Um, is the increasingly egregious behavior of the Senate, uh, the Senate majority leader, and their perceived role as protecting the president and placing partisanship above the Constitution uh, or above uh, traditional norms. And then the second component of this is, of course, the courts are changing very rapidly. Uh, And uh, if uh, Trump is in office for... Six more years, the courts can have changed uh, to the extent to which they're almost unrecognizable from the courts that existed during the Bush period, um, and that that is 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 also worrisome. Uh, as I hand this back to you, Ed, there's one other thing, and that is there is this kind of extraordinary shift, uh, and and Rose is absolutely right. Things were bad during the 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 Bush uh, administration, but there is this extraordinary shift in the rhetoric of this administration, in which the United States government is essentially starting to eat itself. Uh, the The attorney general talked about spying, you know, uh, when there was a uh, an investigation of foreign interference in the election by a foreign intelligence service that has since been substantiated by every intelligence agency, uh, FISA court, uh, warrants approved, uh, by a careful review of FISA courts, all procedures followed and a clear finding that there was such an espionage effort against the United States. And, um, the Supreme, the the, the attorney general is saying, no, no. We have to look and see whether the FBI was spying. And, of course, the president goes further and says that the the FBI and the Mueller team and so forth were guilty of treason. And there are people on the Hill who are speaking of this as, as, as treason. So it's not just that the rule of law looks a little bit shaky. It's not just that the future is a bit worrisome. But there really seems to be an effort here to increase the power of the executive at the expense of the rest of the U.S. government.
0: I think that's absolutely right. I think it's also very short-sighted because there will, sooner or later, be a Democratic president, and that Democratic president is going to face you know, a Republican party that I presume will be up above the veto threshold at the very worst. Um, It's going to have, you know, more than 40 Senate seats and can therefore block most actions by the president if the party hasn't changed face um, and continues to be obstructionist. And the role of the modern Republican Party appears to be to uh, prevent any possibility of constructive public action. That seems to be its sort of bottom line Um, if, if, if it's being undertaken by the other party, but not to initiate any when their own party is in. In office, and so the temptation for a democratic president to become more and more imperial, and to use more and more executive orders, and to declare more and more national emergencies, such as the one that, that Trump declared over the um, the war, and, and that is yet yet to have a judicial um, ruling, and that's going to grow massively. The frustration with the system um, is going to produce more and more pressure to pack the Supreme Court. Um, more and more pressure to, you know, um, have a constitutional convention for what that's worth to abolish the electoral college. There's going to be more and more um, pressures on this system, uh, and you know the system's going to find it increasingly hard to hold as time goes on. And and I just don't think it it's it's going to bend very well. Um, so it's very short-sighted of Republicans to be setting up these. Uh, sort of planning potentially executive precedents, um, because they're going to be used by Democrats, and Democrats are going to are going to be increasingly frustrated um, with the system not working as it should.
1: Um, yeah, I think that's true. In fact, you know, Rosa, one of the things that we saw last week that contributed to my um, uh, rather dispirited, dispiriting view of all of this was that. Of the eighty-some odd letters that the uh, House Judiciary Committee had sent out, something like half of them have responded by saying, "No, we're just not going to do what you said," taunting them to uh, be subpoenaed. Uh, and in the in the in the in the same instance. Um, Uh, We have the the, uh, House Oversight Committee, uh, or or I I think it's the House Oversight Committee, maybe the Ways and Means Committee, um, seeking the president's accounting firm to hand over his financial records, uh, which they appear to be going along with. And the president's lawyers, um, as recently as today, submitted a letter uh, threatening that accounting firm with legal action, uh, saying that they shouldn't turn over those records, and and saying that this Congress was setting itself up as a kind of second-rate IRS, which is interesting since, first of all, the Congress is an Article I uh, institution of the Constitution. In other words, it came first. And secondly, because of that fact, it actually created the IRS and the taxing and levying power within the U.S. government is ascribed by the Constitution to the Congress. So if anybody has a right to this, it's the Congress. It's not uh, any other part of the government. Uh, And yet, again, it's this kind of the body eating itself, and, and the volume of this seems to be turning up, not down.
2: Uh, yes, indeed, decline of empire. That's where we are, David. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, you know, and and notwithstanding everything I said a couple of minutes ago about how it it remains to be seen how robust the guardrails are, that 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 you know some of these fights are heading to the courts. Um, we'll see what the courts do, and we'll see what the Trump administration does in response to court defeats, assuming there are likely likely court defeats. Um, Notwithstanding all of that, I don't mean to suggest in any way that people should have a tremendous amount of faith in the in the legal process. Because I think the phenomenon that you're talking about is, in some ways, in the long term, much more troubling. Which is which is a degradation of uh, a set of political norms that are much more vital to functioning. Government period, uh, not to speak of functioning democratic government. than you know any any laws and any court orders um, that sort of up to a point. Sure, it's normal for there to be skirmishing between the executive branch and the g- legislative branch. You know, up to a point, it's normal for the executive branch to you know push things a little bit to the limit. Um, But when we see, as as you're you're quite right, I think we are seeing a a sort of total breakdown in any norms of cooperation or or bipartisanship, um, that's pretty scary. And and, and indeed, I do think that that's what makes Trump different from George W. Bush, Um, that George W. Bush, when it came to policies, particularly overseas, um, uh, was pretty darn scary. Um, in some ways, even scarier than Trump has been in terms of of his actions so far. But when it came to abiding by the traditional norms of American politics, which um, was okay, you know, in other ways, you know that 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 he he acted like it mattered what the president said. he He acted like he did think it mattered that the president set an example. Uh, of civil discourse and behavior for the rest of the nation. Um, You know, he pretended he cared. He may or may not have actually cared. We don't know uh, about norms of bipartisanship and civil rights and the Constitution and Judicial process, you know, he may not have actually cared, but he did what presidents are supposed to do, and he pretended that he cared. Uh, and in contrast, you know, Trump from from day one, as we know, and I think the most sort of shocking moment for many Americans was was in the Charlottesville uh, riots uh, and the sort of sudden reemergence uh, or sudden visible reemergence of white nationalist organizations, and um, uh, you know, that was the moment when. George W. Bush, no question about it. I think, would we could have relied on him to say, "This is shocking. This is terrible. This is unacceptable in our society." And Donald Trump, as we know, did no such thing. and, you know, said, gee, there are lots of nice people on in that group. And you know the, 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 it, that the signal that that sends, uh, both to ordinary, decent Americans and to those on the right wing political fringes uh, in terms of giving them permission. You know, the signal that sends to waffling co- members of the Republican Party in the Senate and Congress about what is expected and what will be tolerated. I, I think that's where what we've seen Trump has been most devastating in terms of just accelerating that sense of you don't even have to pretend to care. Uh, about these values or traditions anymore. And and I think it'll be very hard to recover from that.
1: Uh, yeah, now, you know, part of the reason that, you know, you that uh, things have changed is that the hard right has gone even harder to the right. I don't know if you saw this, Ed, but uh, earlier today, Michelle Bachman said that we've never seen a, quote, a more biblical president than Trump and she then goes on and says, we will, in all likelihood, never see a more godly biblical president again
0: in our lifetimes. Um, yeah, yeah, I did yeah. see that. Um, uh, and by, um, by a happy coincidence, I've, I've been working on um, a, a long form essay, the cover story for The weekend SD and, um, in the, come, the, the coming weekend, in fact, about the prosperity gospel, which, as you know, is something that Trump was raised with. Um, Don um, uh, Fred Trump would take um, the young Donald and, and his siblings to Norman Vincent Peale's church in Marble Collegiate Church in, in, in Manhattan every Sunday. And Vincent Peale, of course, wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, which sold millions and sort of launched the prosperity gospel. And I've got a, um, a cover story this coming weekend, uh, looking at Joel Osteen's um, Lake church, Lakewood, in, in Houston, you know, which is essentially a blessed, blessed of a wealthy approach to theology that appeals very much to Trump. Never, and It's kind of a never, never, never apologize, never feel guilty form of Christianity. It asks very little of you and says that God smiles on you by um, replenishing your bank account and therefore, Trump is godly in the eyes of followers of the prosperity gospel. And it was extraordinary to me in, in researching that piece. You know, the church attracts a lot of, a lot of um, people from fairly broken backgrounds, middle class, um, not at all wealthy, who you know, They give a tenth of their income, and if not more, to Lakewood. Um, the pastor, Joel Osteen, is, is, uh, and his family are extremely wealthy. Um, and you talk to some of these congregants. And um, they believe that Trump uh, Trump is enjoying the fruits of his godly labor, both in terms of his material success and in terms of his political power, and that God wants him there. And so, Michelle Bachman, you know, is not some crazy lone. Well, she is crazy, but she's not some lone voice um, saying this. There are a lot of Americans, um, you know, who 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 do subscribe to a very odd version of Christianity in which Trump um, Trump is there because God wants him there and Trump is wealthy because God um, believes he deserves it. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people who might otherwise, whose parents might have voted Democrat in the past, um, are Trumpians for that reason. Uh, and, it, I, you know, I found it very fascinating sociologically to look at the prosperity gospel, but also very, very troubling on a cultural level, very troubling on a, on a sociological level.
1: Well, um, particularly to
0: per- per- this way.
1: particularly to the extent that it gets mixed up with all this dominionism, this dominion theology, which has you know people like Pence and and Pompeo and others believing in the notion that somehow they're, they're, you know, a Christian takeover of the government is called for.
0: Absolutely, um, and you know it, there are there are sort of divisions within you know between prosperity gospel and the harder cause sort of dominion evangelists. You know the dominion evangelists are more there's more fire and brimstone there. There's more sort of dramatic eschatology. There's you know there's the end of times as part of it, and there's um, uh, there are some on that side of the uh, theological. Um, spectrum who think prosperity gospel is heresy. Um, but in terms of political voting blocs, they're all with Trump. Um, and, um, and he is you know, seen for various reasons across, across that spectrum um, as being a godly president. Um, uh, but the reason I focus on the prosperity gospel is precisely because it isn't uh, you know, it isn't the fire and brimstone end of it. It's it's the sort of soft end of it, um, uh, and yet they're equally sort of ardent in their support of the president.
1: Well, you know, there's another dimension of this whole thing, Rosa, which goes back to your point, point. and it has to do with the fact that you know Bush seemed to be a decent guy, and he spoke up um, for decency, and he actually did a number. I'm not
2: going to go quite that far. But. Well,
1: but you know, he did in a number he was of. Was willing ga- to I
2: pretend. Mean,
1: well, he he did, and and I and 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 there there was at least a paying lip service to this notion of conscience and values and the president, you know, and so forth. But but what is striking to me, despite the occasional mumbled criticism you hear of Trump, um, from you know Barbara Bush in a biography, of, you know, of her that just came out, you know, months after her death, or you know from others is that you don't have a major movement on the right by traditional leaders within the party willing to challenge Trump. And one of the most particular examples of this that I'm quite struck by is that we have yet to hear anything from Mueller himself um, while his... Report gets baldlerized, and and it so sort of raises questions: Is he just a good soldier going along with things? That time will come when he's called to testify, or or you know what is what is the reason behind the deafening silence um, of 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 the conservative portion of the population to challenge Trump?
2: I don't think we know that his report has been baudelarized yet, right? That's one thing we're probably going to find out on Thursday. Right. It is, an, You know, remember that Mueller is a Republican. Mueller, notwithstanding Trump's efforts to claim, you know, it's all a bunch of Democrats. Uh, Mueller's a, a lifelong Republican. He was a Republican political appointee. He is is not a far-left activist. Um, and more to the point, you know, I, 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 think he's a, I think he's a ethical guy. I think he's a serious professional. Um, but more to the point than his political affiliation, he has been known throughout his career for being a guy who does not color outside the lines. He's extremely risk-averse. He's extremely careful. He does not buck the system. He does not. He does not disobey his bosses. Uh, he does not tear up uh, existing policy guidance, and the policy guidance with which he was operating said, "You don't indict a sitting president." Not because that's a legal requirement, but that was the policy guidance coming from uh, in, internal to the Justice Department uh, that preceded Mueller and preceded this particular uh, special counsel legislation and so forth. So I'm not sure. I, I, you know, I think it's it's fantasy to think that you know Mueller really wants Donald Trump behind bars um, and said so, and only the the uh, shenanigans. Um, and the machinations of, of Attorney General Barr and, and others are, are preventing this truth from seeing the light of day. You know, I think it's entirely possible that Mueller said exactly what Barr said he said. Um, you know, uh, that Mueller said, you know, look, I'm not going to make a legal conclusion here about obstruction of justice you know, there are some stuff that looks like obstruction. There are some stuff that could be potentially exculpatory, um, and I'm not going to make that call. And I don't think there was any active collusion. Although, as you can see from the indictments I have made, I picked up all kinds of uh, disgusting bits of petty criminality from multiple players along the way. And yes, there was Russian interference in the election with the intention of electing Donald Trump. You know, so so, so I, I, not only do I not think there are any Likely to be any huge surprises, but um, I think Mueller is keeping silent, probably most for two reasons. One, because he thinks it's not his job to be talking, and he thinks that that would be a violation of his his ethical obligations. Um, you know, his ethical obligation was to do the investigation to the best of his ability and do it honestly and thoroughly, and I think he did that. Um, and and then to write a report, which he submitted to the attorney general, and he did that. Um. So I don't think he thinks it's his role to speak out, but I also don't think, you know, my guess is he's not seeing anything that is more than slightly irritating to him about the way the report is being spun.
1: Well, that is appropriately measured and and probably right. Uh, at any rate, we are at the beginning of a week uh, that promises to end with um, a bang, or perhaps. Um, Multiple bangs from both sides, asserting different things, uh, moving us closer to understanding all of this, but still leaving us far away from understanding what the long-term consequences are. Uh, because the Mueller report is coming out on Thursday, I think we're going to make the second episode of Deep State Radio come out on Thursday after the Mueller report does, just because it's going to dominate all the news, and no matter what else we talked about, uh, David, it's going to be. David,
2: can I can I just. Jump in to interrupt for one one moment to say one other thing that that could change what dominates the news this week. Um, as we're recording, uh, Notre Dame Cathedral is on fire, and as the spire has fallen, nobody knows what has caused this fire. Uh, if it turns out, and I hope it does not turn out, that the fire was deliberately set and that has something to do with terrorism, I think we're going to be having a very different conversation on Thursday uh, than if it turns out that this was just you know somebody left a bunch of uh, uh, old hymn books in the in the Belfry.
1: Well, I have to say, I, I in watching the news on this all afternoon, I haven't really seen any indication that that's the case. Uh, there was uh, renovation going on, uh, and it seems to have started in an area where the renovation was taking place. But you're right. That could dominate the news were it to turn that way, and clearly um, anything else can happen. Um, but uh, uh, we will... Uh, be p- commenting on it from the position of a little bit later in the week because we're going to postpone the second episode to uh, Thursday afternoon, uh, and we look forward to talking with you then. Please join us for our other podcasts, or go to uh, thedsrnetwork dot com and uh, uh, see what else we've been doing recently, or we have planned for you because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. Or buy a mug, or better yet, become a member and help support. Deep State Radio and the DSR Network, because we're doing great things. These are hard times. You need voices out there uh, like Rosa and like Ed uh, to help uh, cast light on this. Uh, Both of you did a great job. Look forward to talking to you again later in the week. And bye-bye.